District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. This episode is going to largely focus on fly fishing. Over the weekend, I went fishing with this longstanding group called Chesapeake Women Anglers. They've been a fixture here for close to 30 years. And I've really been hooked on fly fishing for the last six, seven years. I like doing it. Sometimes it can be frustrating because it's still difficult to match the hatch to figure out what fish are biting on to study water levels and oxygenation levels and different figures, water flow, things of that sort. So it can be challenging, but I think I'm getting the hang of it. And today's guest is someone who knows fly fishing very well. She's a professional fly angler. And I'm talking about none other than Jen Ripple, who is the editor-in-chief and publisher of Dunn Magazine. Jen and I also happen to serve on the Professional Outdoor Media Association Board of Directors together. She's also a writer for Fly Fishing Women's Fires Guide for Outside Magazine, or has been in the past, and she's also authored the Women's Best of column for Grey's Sporting Journal and other publications. She's also a member of the Executive Board of Directors for Fly Fishers International, Executive Board of Directors for Harpeth River Conservancy, member of the Advisory Committee for the Trout Unlimited Service Partnership, and a former member of the Board of Directors for the American Fly Fishing Trade Association. Jen is going to break down for you how to get into fly fishing. She's going to tell her story of being a professional fly angler, what she looks for in fly angling, her tips for newbies, and so much more. So today we're heavily emphasizing fly fishing. So here is what Jen had to say on the subject. Get to know her. I think you guys will like. Jen, thank you so much for coming on to District of Conservation. Thank you for having me. It's my privilege. I've been wanting you to come on this podcast forever. So I'm really thankful you took time out of your schedule because you are plugging along fishing, working with clients in the media space, and also serving alongside me and other wonderful people with the Professional Outdoor Media Association Board. And we have some exciting plans, which we can't divulge yet for our members, but we have a lot of great plans there. And so, Jen, how did you get involved in fly fishing? I think people know a little bit about your background. What compelled you to take an interest in this sport and this activity? And I think you should also touch upon how we have a similar heritage. I think people would love to hear that story too. Oh, yes, we do. Um, it's, you know, it's a funny story. So uh, my mom came to the United States right after World War II from Russia. Um, she was a displaced person and grew up in a really small town in Wisconsin that's like 40 miles north of Milwaukee called Kewaskum. And my dad is from the town that's just south of there called West Bend. And so when they got married and then had me, we lived in West Bend, Wisconsin, on this little lake called Wallace Lake. And anyone in the West Bend area would know the lake. It's not a big lake, but it's, you know, it's a fun lake. It's got uh, a lot of community behind it. And and my dad, you know, um, his my last name is Ripple, obviously. So my dad's last name is Ripple. And my grandmother bought up almost all the property at one point on Wallace Lake because she said she always wanted a ripple on the water. 
So, you know, I grew up on the lake. I didn't know anything but living on the lake. And, um, but I, I never fished, you know, my, I have a brother and sister and they fished and, but I was more like the, let's go out on the boat. Let's sit under the sun and get a tan because brown fat looks better than white fat and let's uh, water ski and that kind of thing, but never fishing. And so, you know, my mom to this day is like, it's still a shock that you're the one out of the family that makes a living in fishing because it is, it's like I've reinvented myself from my younger person. Um, So I, when I, you know, growing up, not doing this, watching my brother and sister fish, but only with like spinning gear, I um, just never had an interest and I never wanted to really like touch the fish or, and I was really appalled by putting, you know, when they would put a worm on the hook, I just thought that was so mean and all that kind of stuff. So I was more into dance. Well, then I, you know, got married, had some kids, lived in Chicago, um, not a lot of opportunity to, you know, get into fishing when I'm raising four children. And then I took a job at the University of Michigan and the University of Michigan um, campus the Huron River, which is a big smallmouth river, runs right through the campus. And it's a beautiful river. And it was a really, really cold winter. And I was looking for something new to do. And I'm not the type to like, you know, crochet or anything. That's just not my personality. And so I looked online and there was a fly tying class. And I kind of had an inkling of what it was, but really didn't know. And so I, it was really, really cold the first night when I was supposed to go to the class. And I thought, oh, I just don't want to go. It's like below zero out, but I like going to the gym. I dragged myself out there. And from the moment I walked in the fly shop, I just fell in love with everything that was fly fishing. So I took uh, that whole, went to every single class for that fly tying. Um, So came into fly fishing through the back door of fly tying, learned to fly tie, uh, tie flies. And then from that point forward, when the ice was off the Huron River, every day after work, I would just put on my waders, walk, you know, uh, 30 feet to the river and just spend hours in the river teaching myself to fly fish. And so it was been a big, giant black hole ever since. And you've really done well in the industry. People look up to you. A lot of women especially look up to you in fly fishing because of your foray into the sport, what you've been able to accomplish, the different types of species you've caught and released or caught in different destinations you've been to. And it's culminated in Dunn Magazine. So talk about how Dunn Magazine, the Dunn Magazine origin story and and what you guys set out to do in the magazine too. Yeah, sure. So um, I, when I moved back from Ann Arbor back to Chicagoland, I still obviously was very, very involved in fly. And I moved to an area called the circle, um, in a little area of Chicago called Nor- Norwood park. And there's this little tiny fly shop. It's more of a rod building shop, but it's right there on the circle. And, um, it's called Corn's rod and reel. And I walked in there and when I walked in, the guy said, Hey, uh, there's a guy who's teaching a fly tying class here you should come to the fly tying class. And oh, by the way, he just started this Midwest fly fishing magazine called A Tight Loop. So I, you know, it was just online. It was a magazine online. I thought, oh, well, this is really cool. This is back in the day when, you know, there were no um, really online magazines at all, but kind of the world was getting into the internet. And so it kind of made sense. I could see all the content there and I read that and then went to the fly tying class And uh, I was writing a blog at the time called Arsenic and Church Grace. So I am actually an ex-pastor's wife. 
And so um, Arsenic and Church Grace was like an expose on the church. And so it became quite popular in the Chicagoland area and beyond um, at that time. Well, the guy who was um, teaching the fly time class, who also owned this Midwest fly fishing magazine now, uh, had found out about that blog and asked if I would write a woman's column for this Midwest fly fishing magazine. Well, I had never done anything like that before, but I was fully entrenched in fly. And so I started writing this woman's column. And it was a very, it was a very classic early woman's column where this is a dude's magazine and they want articles that are kind of double entendre and, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So I wrote articles like the sex hatch and eight inches and all these ridiculous (laughs) columns, right? It was just ridiculous. Anything to get my foot in the door. And then I started really wanting to write, um, you know, a different type of article, a real fly fishing article. And so I started writing a little bit about that in in the column that I had in a tight loop magazine. And then um, in June of 2013, I wanted I wrote this article and I really wanted to put it in a woman's magazine. So I looked around for a woman's fly fishing magazine to submit to and realized there wasn't one. So I went to the editor of a tight loop magazine, who was also the brilliant web programmer who had written all the code for this page turning magazine online. And I said, hey, um, how about if I start a woman's fly fishing magazine? Would you help me? And he was like, there's got to be one out there already. So he searched and I searched and we found out there wasn't one. So that was June of 2013. And by September, I had my first magazine. That's incredible. And what are some samplings of pieces you guys have published? Is it like how-tos? Is it storytelling? What is the type of content? It's all of the above. So when I was starting the magazine, I really wanted to give women a place to tell their stories, a home base, so to speak, for the fly and for anybody that was getting into fly or wanted to get into it. And and I wanted it to be empowering above all else. I wanted it to be, you know, fly can be so intimidating all in its own, apart from being a male dominated sport. Right. So, I mean, it's just as intimidating to go out there and try to cast a fly rod because everybody watches and you feel so awkward and you don't know what you're doing. And it's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach, right. When you first start. And so I wanted to break down that stereotype and I wanted to take the intimidation away from it. So the way that I am empowered, um, by content is by the everyday angler story. So if I tell a story of a woman, you know, a professional fly woman like Meredith McCord, maybe April Volke, brilliant, great, or even myself at this point, you know, great women in the sport who've been in it a long time who consider themselves professional fly anglers. You know, if I tell their story about how they caught a giant uh, tarpon on fly, that's great, but that's not going to tell the everyday woman who's considering maybe picking up a fly rod to think like, oh, I could do that, right? But if I tell the story of a young girl whose dad was an avid flyingler who always asked her to come fishing with him and she had never had any time. So one day, you know, her dad died suddenly and she was, you know, just devastated and walked out into the garage and saw her dad's fly gear sitting there and put on his waders and his boots and picked up his fly gear and went to the river and worked through the stages of grief with her dad's fly rod. Well, that's a story that just grabs anybody. And they're like, wow, maybe there's more to this fly than what I think there is. Or a story of, you know, um, a woman who goes to El Salvador and picks up a fly rod on a vacation for the first time and catches a beautiful trout and is like, you know, 
oh my gosh, wow, maybe I can do that as well. So there's all these different stories that we tell just told by the everyday angler, which empowers other women to get out there. And, you know, too, I think in fly, you know, there's a time, I mean, I had been in fly for a couple of years and because I was self-taught and I was always in the fly shop, there came a point maybe about a year in where I was a local at the fly shop and people would come in and because it was a local, they would just start talking about stuff, basics that I had never known because I I had never been taught because I was self-taught or no one had ever taken the time to explain something to me. So they just assumed that I knew these things. So I realized there was this big gap in my own learning. Um, And I thought, well, if I have this big gap in my learning, because people just assume that I know this, but I don't. And now I'm at the stage where I'm embarrassed to ask because everybody assumes I should know the basics. I thought, you know what? Dunn needs a section that is the basics as well. So we do a very, we do very simple, basic, like starting out articles and all the way up through your avid angler who's been fishing forever would get something out of the article. So we cover the full gamut. And I would say the difference between Dunn and other fly fishing magazines is we are a fly fishing magazine that is 99% written by women. Once in a very great while will we have a guest writer who is a male, but for the most part, this is a a fly fishing magazine for everyone that is written by women. Yeah. And you guys have had some great pieces. I've interacted with a few of your writers and I do like the storytelling that comes with it. And it's not to take away from general fishing journalism. I do think sometimes women aren't able to tell their stories or their stories can be totally misrepresented. I remember There was a piece a few years ago from Meat Eater where a male writer had talked about a competitive bass angler in a very weird way. I never saw the original article. I just saw the retraction. They were talking about her moodiness and like her time of the month. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so mortifying. Why are they doing this? So sometimes women, I think all the time, women should tell their story when a man cannot adequately tell theirs. Not saying that there are any... Uh, poor, like every male writer is bad. No, there are many phenomenal male outdoor communicators, but this person, I forget the individual in question, just did a disservice to the really good ones. So yeah. when men cannot tell your story, you need to tell your story yourself. Agreed. I think that's what Dunn Magazine and, and similar outfits like it can do. But more so into the basics of fly fishing, what do you recommend for people who are interested? I talk to people all the time. They see me fly fish sometimes to success, sometimes to no success. It's a tricky thing. And I've been doing it now for like five, six years. And I started with spin and bait cast myself and I transitioned to it. And I still do those other forms as well, but it's tricky for me too. But people see me doing it. They see the sport overall catching popularity and becoming more and more reachable to audiences. What are like your two to three tips for people who are interested to fly fish? What do you recommend they do? Sure. So first of all, I recommend that they take a class. Um, If there's an Orvis around them, Orvis does this excellent job at educating new anglers, wannabe fly anglers, uh, fly curious people. They uh, they do a 101 class that's completely free. It's a four hour class. It teaches you everything, you know, from the the entomology to the knots, to the, the weights of rods, to what line to use, what different lines there are. And then they teach you how to cast too. And I would suggest I would suggest if you're really um, wanting to start, not knowing where to start, the Orvis 101, if there's an Orvis around you, is a great place to start and completely free. Um, I would say 
you know, if you're just looking for a basic package, you don't need the most expensive rod reel out there. Buying a fly combo, like one that's from Orvis, or there are some other, um, you know, like um, Gray's has a combo package. Um, It's a great way to get your foot in the door without spending $1,000 on a rod because we know that, you know, fly can be expensive, but it doesn't have to be. There's now options for fly anglers at every budget level. And so I would say you pick up a regular, you know, like your most versatile rod reel combo would be a five weight with a floating line. And then do yourself a service and go to your local pond where there's bluegill and bass and put on a terrestrial, which would be like an ant, a beetle, you know, a grasshopper pattern in the summer when those bugs are around. Because if you think about it, as a new angler who's just learning how to cast and how to strip line in and what, you know, what to do with the fly on the end, if a grasshopper falls off the bank into the water, it is spastic. It's jumping around. It's trying everything it can to get out of the water. Now, that as a new angler is like the perfect presentation of a fly for you. So if you put a grasshopper, it's summertime, you're at your local pond, you put a grasshopper fly on the end of your floating line, and you go out and you stick that in the water. It doesn't have to have a perfect drift. It can bounce around like you're going to because you're a new angler. And guess what? That's going to look like a natural grasshopper that just fell in the water. Give yourself all the opportunities to do it right. I wouldn't say your first option for fly fishing would be to go tarpon fishing in Isle Morata, Florida. That's not going to do it. You're not (laughs) going to love it, right? Make, Make everything possible that you can have a great time and learn and get yourself involved in a group. You know, like as women, United Women on the Fly has locations all over the place or local fly groups or Trout Unlimited chapters. They're all over. And these are full of people who love to fly fish and who love to teach new people how to fly fish. Now, you know, people have talked about how fly shops can be intimidating places and people can be, you know, mean in the fly shop. Yeah. You know what? There are mean people everywhere. And if you walk in as a woman, one of my, one of my, my pet peeves is women who will say, well, I went into a fly shop and they treated me poorly because I was a woman. No, they treated you poorly because it's a fly shop and that guy's not a nice guy. That's it. They treat yeah. men just as bad as they do women. Yep. So <laughs> this is not a man versus woman thing in fly anymore. And so, you know, I, I just feel like if you're going to go find a group, find a friend, reach out to me, reach out to someone else, you know, that likes fly, that does fly fishing. There's so many people who just love to take someone else fishing and see them catch a first fish on a fly. Those are absolutely good recommendations. And I want to speak to Orvis too, because I love the local fly shops. I've been able to befriend two managers or two employees of one manager and a previous manager who helped me learn how to fly fish. He was overseeing my Orvis 101 course. Uh, Duber Winter is a really cool guy. And I think he has since kind of retired, but still does fishing, but he doesn't work in Orvis anymore. Really phenomenal fly guide. And he made learning fly fishing the most seamless, enjoyable thing ever. He was really delicate and nice. Not like, oh, you know, you're a woman, you need delicacy, but he was really understanding and very nice. And he's like, oh my gosh, your casting's improving so quickly. And just, just encouraging. And that's what you really need. And then the, the guys at the Orvis in Arlington, local to me and also to Tyson's Corner. And they're in Northern Virginia for those who are unaware of where that is geographically. They're, they're scattered all over the country. The guys are very friendly. They really, and women who work there too, but I've mostly encountered male employees there. 
but it's a super welcoming place. They even sometimes let you go fishing with them for free, like for free clinics. I've done the shad run with them. And sometimes if I don't have like a fly or the appropriate strike indicator or something, they will have it for you. So sometimes in addition to like paid trips that they offer, like really nice kind of glamping trout experiences all over the, the Commonwealth or all over the region or even out West, um, they do offer a lot of free fishing opportunities, do-it-yourself opportunities too. So it's not just like you're only shelling out money to learn how to fly fish. Uh, once you take an Orvis 101, they also have a lot of free options too. So depending upon where you live, you can even get a lot more than just Orvis 101. So I wanted to plug that in as well. Yeah, I love that. And you know what? I think that a lot of people, they think that fly fishing is hard and really it's not. Fly fishing is not as complicated and difficult as it looks. It just takes a, a little bit of time and a good instructor. Indeed, it absolutely does. But I've noticed it is becoming a more welcoming sport because I had naively this perception that it's mostly for like wealthy people or like a certain type of like angler, someone who like shrugs off eating fish. You know, you can't eat, you can't be a put and take fisher or angler and fly fish, but I've met people who do both put and take and catch and release. And that's kind of my philosophy too. Um, but it's, it's a lot more ecumenical and welcoming a lot now because a lot of barriers have been opened and overcome. And I think that's a good thing because we want people to discover the style, especially if you're fishing in more restrictive waters, like very delicate streams, you want to practice catch and release and only use fly tackle rather than using like a treble hook or something that could have a lot of negative impact onto the fish, their gills, uh, their mouth, especially if you're catching and releasing. And so I think fly fishing is good with imposing ethics um, in that regard. And Jen, is there anything else you want to add before we conclude our interview? Anything, any important topics or tips for fly fishing even more? Well, you know, for me, the the thing that got me into conservation, I it was never on my radar before I got into fly. And the group that I that I joined, the Michigan Fly Girls, it had you had to be a part of Trout Unlimited in order to be part of their group. And I didn't realize it at the time, but how brilliant is that? Because, you know, fly is very conservation minded from the way that you handle the fish to the the way that we protect the waters to everything about it is just, you know, giving back and not always just taking. And, and what a great and important uh, lesson that I learned through fly, you know, and so I think that if I was going to say anything about fly, the most meaningful thing that I've taken away from it is my love of all things natural and the conservation that it brings so that I've become a huge conservationist because of it. And that's, you know, another reason why, you know, let's let's get more people into fly. The more people that we get into our hunting and our fishing spaces, the more people love those areas and want to preserve them. And that's what it's really all about. It truly is. And I think, why would we take a resource or why would we engage with a resource for catch and release purposes, either if we didn't want to leave it better than we found it. Why would it would be so counterintuitive to take everything out of the water? I really dislike poaching. And what I've noticed here, and it's not the fault of my agency, but we have people who follow the trout stocking boats or boats, yep. trout, trout stocking trucks, like, you know, a, a coyote is chasing a, um, a roadrunner in that sense. And maybe there's another better parallel, but actively like a fox looking after prey. I think that's a better metaphor. And they get outfished within a week and you go there and you're like, okay, maybe I'll have a chance of catching, let's say, primarily stocked trout in these urban waters or uh, prime fishing areas outside Shenandoah National Park. And you can't find any because people take more than their lot or yep. they poach. 
And so I don't, I have to talk to them and be like, what can we do? What can we do as anglers to prevent that or lessen that from happening? So more people can enjoy the fishery. Um, but it's like, that's my only frustrating thing with, with fly angling yeah. sometimes is I can't do it all the time because there's no fish to pursue, um, when that happens, but the stocking program is phenomenal. I love it. We wouldn't be having the amount of fish we do without it, uh, imperfections or not, but I just wish that they would be a little more uh, helpful with preventing a little. Oh, it's the same here in Tennessee. It is exactly the same, and I I don't think that that's an unusual experience. No, unfortunately. Jen, how can people connect with you? Learn more about Done. Plug in all the social media links and appropriate web links, please. Yeah, sure. So you can follow Done Magazine at D U N, like the Mayfly. DunnMagazine.com. And my email is very easy and I'm always open to receiving emails. I'd love to help you in any way along the fly journey. That's just Jen, J-E-N at dunmagazine.com. Perfect, Jen. It's always so great to talk to you. We've been working behind the scenes, cooking up a lot of stuff with Poma. And we can't wait to share that with everyone in the public very, very soon. But I enjoy talking to you. I know we'll get to fish at some point together, maybe when we do her upcoming POMA conference. I hope we can fish together in, in each of our respective waters. I'd love to show you some Virginia waters, and I'd love to see some Tennessee waters too. So thank you for coming on and talking about Dunn and, and the virtues of fly fishing. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.